0: A lot of people will say you learn it through experience, but oftentimes if you rely only on experience to teach you, your learning process is going to be littered with the bodies of all the animals that died for you to learn.
1: This episode of Voices from the Field continues the discussion between Mickey Willenbring, a lifelong shepherd who raises Navajo churro and caracal sheep in western Oregon, and NCAT Sustainable Agriculture Specialist, Linda Poole. Mickey touches on the value of breeding, the role of on-farm experiments, the need for a good veterinarian and client relationship, and learning from people we
2: don't agree with. Let's listen. You know, one thing that, that we haven't talked about, Mickey, that I think is really fascinating, and, it, and I think it works with your entire program, is that you... Are, are, you're starting a processing business or maybe you already have had and if people go to your website is that dot ranch.com is that what what's the name of your website
0: no it's dot ranchchurls.com okay. so dot s.com Great. Yeah. And we'll link to
2: that in the show notes too. But one of the things that I notice when I look at your website is that you have such an integrated marketing idea. And it's clear to me that, that you run by the principle of we're not going to waste anything. You know, we're, we're putting manure on our gardens and, and we're, we're selling pelts and we're selling meat and, and, can you talk a little bit about how the profitability, how the financial end of this business goes? And and I would love to hear about this idea of a processing facility if I wasn't wrong about that with
0: you. So what, holy smokes, this is like a whole, whole podcast all on its own to, to start. I think we have to look at the physiology of the Navajo Churro sheep. They are small animals. They have most of their weight is muscle weight. They do not put on fat in the same way as more modern breeds do or more um, more, your English sheep have much more fat on their bodies than Navajo churro sheep do. Caracal sheep is the same sort of thing where their fat is layered on in different locations than on European sheep. In the form of Navajo churro sheep, Navajo sheep carry their fat on the insides of their body, not the outsides. So they don't typically have a lot of fat around the leg or along the loin or along the back. They put more of their fat on around the liver and the kidneys and the call fat. And call fat is that beautiful lattice work, spider web lace of fat, which cushions all of the organ's inside of the body cavity so when you butcher an animal and you open it up all of the organs are held in that sac. there's a membrane and then there's the call fat that kind of just keeps everything together on a navajo churro sheep the majority of the animal's fat production goes into those areas that are internal not external on a caracal sheep Uh, Most of their fat goes to their tail. They're called a fat tail breed. And that's a desert adaptation as well because fat allows the body to store water much easier. So caracal sheep in particular, because they're traditionally from the Middle East where water is very scarce and they might not be watered once every four days, uh, especially if they're caravanning, they really needed that extra storage. It's just like the humps on a camel. And Navajo churro sheep also were developed in a very water limited environment, the American Southwest. And so they also store their fat in different ways. Now, how this comes into play with marketing is that we can't get the same prices for our animals at auction as the 4-H kid can get for their Suffolk lamb because our animals just don't look that good in comparison to a Suffolk. Their value is not in the size of the animal and the yield of the meat. The value is in the flavor of the meat and the differences are more than just visceral to make a terrible pun (laughs) but they're also um, the mouth feel of Navajo churro lamb and caracol lamb is completely different than that of modern lamb and it's a much more delicate meat it comes in smaller portions It absorbs spices easier. It is easier to overpower with overspicing, unlike other uh, more Eurocentric and uh, particularly English and uh, modern Spanish breeds. And so we had to find a way to make money off of them that didn't just depend upon hanging weights is where I'm going with all this. We had to find a way that also honored the animal, that took into consideration that there's more to the animal than just meat. That's a living, feeling being that just sacrificed, was sacrificed for the nurture of others. And they are more valuable than just the kind of nurture that goes onto your plate. So we do hand-to-hand of the hides, we sell bones, we sell um, skulls, I clean up the skulls and everything, and we pretty much try and do an honoring of the animal from tail to snout, or snout to tail, however you want to look at it. We also sell wool off of the live animals because that's wool is a renewable resource and it's wonderful. It can be used for all sorts of different things. You don't even need to have a sheep skin. For example, you can shear them and felt it and it'll be a skinless sheepskin, so to speak. And there's people, artists that do that all day long and, and they love their work. So When marketing the wool, we discovered that a lot of people have a really negative viewpoint of Navajo churro wool as only being good for rugs. And really, because the wool is unique with the double coat, there's a lot of different uses that the wool can go to. And some people don't understand that the inner coat of Navajo sheep can be just as fine in micron count as fine wool sheep. So you can process the wool to either utilize only the inner or only the outer or both the inner and outer spun together. And all three of those different processing methods will yield a very different product, which is useful for a wide variety of things. And it's important to note that that is not an accident, that Navajo weavers already had a long-standing weaving tradition before Spanish contact was first made and before European contact was made. And that once these sheep came into Navajo hands, they very purposefully bred these animals to produce fleece that could cover a wide range of needs. Because life is more than just rugs. Wow. It's also clothes. Yeah. and
2: force. So, so Mickey, I've never heard this before. Um, what, what was the fiber that was being used prior to the sheep coming? This is me as a hand spinner. You know, I spin everything. It's like, what am I missing that I should be given a whirl at? Do you know? I mean, I, I spin oh. rabbit and coyote undercoat and different things like that. But what did the Dené
0: use? So there were a number of natural plant fibers that are endemic to the Americas that were used, mm. including flax and different forms of grasses and even some bromeliad types, like uh, there's various um, relatives of agave. Yep and yucca and in those plants that are available in the southwest that were all used for fiber and weaving yeah. there were also this is something that a lot of people don't talk about enough is navajo were not the only weavers there's a very long standing native american weaving tradition in northwestern natives as well who also used animal fiber from Mountain goats, Uh and there is evidence that mountain goats might have actually been used as domesticated animals in the form of old stone corrals that are found all the way from Alaska all the way down into the Southwest. Oh my! Oh my gosh! So is is this mountain goats or bighorn sheep or both, Mickey? Mountain mountain goats in particular. Wow. Now, That's when amazing. it comes to sheep, So now and I I'm gonna preface this, okay? I am not Diné. I am not Navajo. Um I was my my son is, but I am not. So it is not entire, it's not my place to go too deep into Navajo stories. But what I can say is that there are traditions in Navajo belief, in their creation stories, in their chants, and in their songs that talk about how they had sheep once before, and those sheep were taken from them because they got too greedy and they didn't treat them right. And then they came back later. And the Navajo churro sheep in particular, are the sheep that came back and so there is this deep thread through Navajo tradition in particular that tells many many different points of loss of sheep for many different reasons and then regaining and that ties that in to the loss of stability in their greater environment as well, the loss of the water, the times of drought, the times of hardship. So it cannot be expressed strongly enough that Navajo sheep are part of a living culture, and that they're an integral part of a living culture, and they're not just some like artifacts of the old West.
2: And they're not a commodity. They're not just a commodity. They're not interchangeable with, okay, it's too droughty for you to have Navajo churro sheep. So, um, you know, here you're going to raise rambles or here you're going to raise goats or, you know, anyway. Uh, I think that that understanding of, you know, it's place-based, to me, it's place-based and it's holistic and and you're helping us understand so much more about that, Mickey. I think about, uh, I spent 10 years or so in the Klamath Basin in central Oregon and there was a huge, and it continues, um, problem over water. You know, the use of surface water and how much goes to agriculture and how much goes to irrigators. First in time, first in right, but somehow not always recognizing that the first in time were the Native American tribes um, along that along that system. And I, um, some of the tribal people uh, were trying to explain to me some of these, you know, just trying to help me understand a a better, you know, a more holistic way to look at this. And what I heard from them is that it is essential that we continue to harvest the the plants that are here that we continue our relationship as managers with fire with with livestock with all these different things because if we aren't in relationship with a land like this it is disrespectful and and we lose the ability to um to you know basically continue to evolve and be better, ever better stewards of the system that we're part of. And so often, you know, in in mainstream culture, what we think is when something goes awry, we have this great big drought, the first thing that we think of is pull the livestock out or, or discontinue some of the agricultural practices. And in some cases, that's exactly the right thing to do. But I think that that uh, there's great value with the understanding of, can we continue our relationship with the land, with our livestock, with the plants, with the water, with the soil, with the air, with our neighbors, to to adapt through time to to this changing system. It's not the first time people had to adapt <laughs> you know you said it they the the people have lost their sheep several times and to me what i think i heard is that sometimes that the the feeling was that it was that the sheep were taken away because of a lack of respect or a lack of um proper relationship was did i hear that right
0: i i wouldn't venture to uh I wouldn't venture to interpret Denea belief for Denea people. Okay, that's not really my place. All yeah. I, you know, I think that I would highly recommend that if anybody finds this concept in particular interesting, mm-hmm. that there are several Denea shepherds who have an online presence, and one storyteller in particular, uh, Nikhail Begay, yes, is wonderful resource. And you can find Mikhail Begay on Instagram. Um, I believe their Instagram handle is at Navajo Shepherd. And they tell a rich and informed series of stories that are appropriate to be shared with outsiders that help many of us to better inform Our stewardship within this breed and our our comport and our actions when we go to visit Navajo Nation and our ability to understand our own relationship to the wonderfully generous Diné people of the American Southwest. Yeah, you know,
2: I first read Nick Kyle's writing through Spinoff Magazine. Like I said, I'm kind of a fiber freak. I love to spin, and Nick Kyle's writings have been so useful in in helping me to understand what what that landscape and 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 the animals and the people how they how they go together. It's made me as a shepherd really think about, so what is it that I'm doing? What are the, you know, the first, second, third, fourth, if you could put this out to seven generations, the things that I am doing on the land now with my sheep, what would be the logical outcomes of this? And am I headed in the direction that I want it to be for, you know, the grandchildren of grandchildren? Uh, And it's not an easy thing to, to think about. To me, it's in front of my mind every time. Um, my dad, uh, a rancher in eastern Washington, when I started doing this type of agri- eco- ecological work, I worked for the Nature Conservancy for a long time. He said, I want you to be really careful about, about how you talk with people about their management of the land. And I said, well, you know, what what what's your advice, Dad? And he said, Well, I just need to tell you that there was a time when um when we were told as ranchers by agencies, the ones who, who fund and direct this work, we were told that that good management meant straightening all your streams and getting all the all the willows and cottonwoods off of them because that was an inefficient yeah. delivery system for water and you were wasting water. And so it was told to us that we were bad managers unless we did this. And he says, and now I know what you're doing, Linda. You're recommending that people restore sinuosity to their streams and plant willows and restore, you know, riparian gallery forests that's what you're doing. And he said, and he said, I'm not saying that's wrong. But what I'm saying is whenever you think you're making a decision, just try to try to imagine how this could be wrong. And you always we always will be wrong. We always can learn how to do things better. But I don't know those words, 40 years later, they echo in my mind. And it's not It's not dissimilar from what I just am learning, listening to talk, you know, listening as you speak, Mickey, I think that's, that's so valuable. One of the things that I love to do with um, people on this podcast is, and I know that, that you're so careful about, about giving advice, and I value that at the same time what i know is that you've been at this and thinking very deeply and with a lot of wisdom about how to use sheep to create a good life and and to help heal the land so if if there are beginning shepherds or somebody who's just thinking about getting into sheep you know do you have some top tips or or things where yeah, yeah.
0: Oh yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So tell us, spill it. They very seldom pay attention, but you know, uh, <laughs> the number one thing that I, I try and impart on people is research before you leave, and uh, it And when I say research, I don't mean uh, reading um, um, a heart-touching memoir of a beginning farmer who's all still full of the blush of just discovering their calling. What I mean is read the stuff, the, the really dry, freaking nitty gritty things like the Laura Lawson books that are just basically uh, flow charts of doom. Because if you can read through say, managing your you and her lamb, and go through all that and realize that, wow, things can really go wrong, really fast. And sometimes the solutions are really technical and kind of icky. From a neo standpoint of not ever having to insert needles into the flesh of a living kicking being before, or, you know, sew together a, a flap of skin that accidentally got freaking slid open by eight inches during shearing, then maybe, maybe that initial shock of reading those resources will spare you the pain of actually having to do that in real life and not having that well of that particular kind of strength. It's not saying that you don't have strength. It's just saying that if you don't have that particular kind of strength, maybe this form of agriculture might not be the best for you. But if you read through those and you're like, yeah, I feel prepared now. I feel ready. I have a good understanding of what could go wrong. And I think I'd be okay and I wouldn't panic and I'd know at least what section of the book to go back to to walk myself through how to address it. Then you're probably as ready for beginning farming as anybody is, which none of us are truly ready when we first start. My other piece of advice would be don't start with high end animals. There are a lot of a lot of authors that malign auctions that say going to the auction is buying someone else's problems. And there is some truth to this because a lot of people do, there's a lot of disease in the sheep world and a lot of them are communicable. And once they go into the land, it could be hard to get rid of. If not, sometimes they can stay in part of your land for up to 10 years. So when When I say this, I always say it with a caveat that you should always build your fences, your handling systems, and a quarantine before you bring home your animals. And if you're like us in a hilly country, set your quarantine at the lowest point of your land so that they're not dripping water down into everyone else. And you will never use the quarantine for anything else. It will never be anything but a quarantine. So make sure that you really, you know, live on your land for like a year beforehand. So you can see where water pools and kind of see how the environment reacts with the different seasons before you bring home the sheep, before you build your fences, before you build your handling facilities, Before you build your sheds and all like that. Because there's nothing worse than building a shed and having it flood. And once you get that, you know, you got to go slow. Like you got to really just kind of be thoughtful and think about how you're going to interact with something when you're having a bad day and you're sick and you don't want to deal with everything. Because sheep don't care what kind of day. Livestock don't care what kind of day you're having. They still need the same things every single day. So with that said, I usually tell people, buy animals at the, at the auction first. Buy some leathers that's castrated sheep. Buy some weathers, something that's not sexually active. Put it in your quarantine. Do health testing on it. Make sure it doesn't have something that you aren't going to be able to get rid of off of your land. And if it doesn't, Then go ahead, raise those animals for a full cycle, raise them until they're ready to butcher and then butcher them, whether that's by yourself or whether that's through uh, slaughter channels, like like a formal butcher, it doesn't matter. Because you're going to at that point feel the emotional impact of having cared for the animal for that whole time period, whether it's six months or nine months or whatever, of getting them ready to be butchered and then taking them in and then actually eating them, honoring that sacrifice, that choice that you made on their behalf for their life to end. And if you find that that's something that you can't do, that you have emotional attachment and so forth, Then maybe you know, it doesn't say you can't have sheep, but it says that maybe you shouldn't breed sheep. Maybe you should just have some buddy sheep Mm -hmm. that are not sexually active animals. And it's okay to try things and fail because failure informs us on our path to success. And it's okay to try something on and realize that maybe it's not cut out for you. And maybe it's the breed. Maybe it's this, maybe it's that. But if you start out small, and give yourself time to become acclimated to each aspect of this life, you will have a far more stable base for future success than if you just go in gung-ho and drop a ton of money on really expensive animals and then kill them all by accident over the next two years.
2: So research the reality of raising sheep. Make sure sure that you know what you're getting or at least have some idea of what you're getting into. Don't start with high-end animals
0: ease into this is there anything more that you would recommend i would say that you know extension services are very useful but they are tools and uh like all tools sometimes things are more appropriate for certain uses than others and not all extension agents have the same levels of expertise with all aspects of agriculture. So if you're in an area where there's not a lot of sheep people and you know something that you need to consider is what is your comfort level with going for help and what help is actually available in your area? Do you have veterinarians in your area that are Uh, equipped to handle sheep emergencies. Do you have to already be an existing client in order to have an emergency call? We recently had a cow that bloated. She, she got poisoned with something. We suspect it was rhododendron, which is native in this area, but uh, she bloated and there were no emergency livestock vets available for anyone who wasn't an already existing client and our regular livestock vet was out of town. So we ended up having to, uh, this is a hardcore story. If you got to edit this out, go for it. But we had to stab a cow in the side to relieve the bloat. Yep. And then uh, I, I, I never, want to go through that again. I now have several trocars which are a special tool for handling bloat and I've watched an awful lot of YouTube videos and I've studied an awful lot of anatomical charts to ensure that I'm not hitting the wrong organ or doing the wrong thing in any kind of situation like that. So you have to really look like what's what's your comfort level for how far are you willing to go? to ensure the life and well-being of your animals and how far do you want to pay someone else to do that? And do you have the funds and the availability of that other resource? Yeah. You know, and I I totally uh totally forgot what the other questions were.
2: <laughs> <laughs> when you start when you start talking about having to having to deal with bloat by by stabbing a, an animal, it kind of gets us off the off the, you know, thinking of where we were, my little deal that I do. And I I discovered a treatment that's called Therabloat. They're just little tiny bottles of a, um, it's an oily type of thing. And I, you know, I've had, I haven't had a lot of bloat because of the way I manage my sheep, but I have had some and I've been amazed. I mean, you put that TheraBloat in and if you know how to drench an animal so, the, so that the, the medication gets to right to where it needs, in five minutes, they're better.
0: It's like... Unfortunately, in, in some types of bloat, there is an esophageal obstruction and you cannot drench those animals. Yeah. And rhododendron poisoning causes that. That's what actually causes the is the cow is no longer or the sheep, whatever animal ingests the rhododendron, their throat muscles become paralyzed. They're unable to burp or swallow, right. and if they keep their head up, they'll aspirate. So if you try and put a stomach tube in an animal with an esophageal obstruction like that, you will cause permanent damage to the animal and potentially kill them with that. Yeah. So there's are sometimes where a trocar or or manual venting is the only way to do it and it's you know blow can kill within an hour so yeah. it's really you don't cut a lot of time to to fafo about it you know and that's and that does tie into this is that how do you build that knowledge exactly how do you these things and a lot of people will say you learn it through experience but oftentimes if you rely only on experience to teach you your learning process is going to be littered with the bodies of all the animals that died for you to learn yes don't have time to stay up to date on the freshest sustainable agriculture news events and funding opportunities you can trust NCAT to keep you connected with our weekly harvest e-newsletter. Subscribe today at NCAT.org and get your weekly harvest delivered each Wednesday.
2: Yeah, so yeah. How, how do you how do you learn, Mickey? Do you have a community of, of that you interact with a network or you know, how could listeners to this podcast think about how to get that knowledge that might not be in a book and that you don't want to learn because you just killed an animal, you've done a necropsy, and you realize, oh, I did that. I didn't mean to, but I did that. So what what are the alternatives for
0: learning? Well, you know, um, there's a lot of alternatives, and there's one that I'm not going to recommend. And this might cause a firestorm, but I'm going to stick to my guns on this. I do not recommend forums. Internet forums are full of opinions. Oftentimes, I think a lot of people have a hard time determining the difference between conviction and fact. Yeah. Someone has strong convictions in the advice that they're giving. That does not mean that they're giving facts.
2: I, I agree. I think the difference for me is is are you looking at confidence or are you looking at competence when people have the yeah.
0: yeah. You know the the other side of things is like I, I don't think that books are read often enough. I am a strong proponent of books because there are many, many incredible veterinary Books out there, and for the folks that live in areas where vets are hard to find or often time out out hunting, there are many different resources for veterinary students to help you decipher the text and the and all of the different terminology. So there's like, uh, for example, there's a veterinary terminology manual that you can get online or you can purchase or special order into your local bookstore that helps you learn what those terms all are so that you can use one of the more hardcore vet books that is directed towards animal, towards a uh, large animal and small animal veterinarians. Uh, we have a huge library here of sheet books. I'm, I'm pretty So I I push books a lot, honestly. The other thing that I do is because, you know, oftentimes by the time something is published, new knowledge has come out. So I read a lot of things in academic databases. And of course, I'm a sheep geek. So, hey, maybe (laughs) I go a little little far on this. Don't feel like you have to go to JSTOR with your questions, okay? Okay. I like JSTOR because it has scientific publications on it, and it's got up. You can really play with the search terms and the parameters and hone it down to to where you're only looking at modern stuff, or you're only looking at vintage stuff, or you're doing a catch-all drink from the hose. Those are good resources because those are actually peer-reviewed and they have. You know, standardized experiments were used. Another good resource is people, your community. Don't be afraid to talk to people that don't agree with you. Because if you only talk to people that agree with you, or, you know, for example, if everybody around you says that apple cider vinegar is the cure for everything from foot rot to cancer, and they all are certain of it. Maybe you want to go find somebody that says apple cider vinegar is a delicious addition to my salad and I occasionally put it in my water for kidney stones. But here's some other alternatives. Get lots of different viewpoints from lots of different people, including people you wouldn't otherwise talk to. It is. It costs you nothing to be polite and kind to someone you don't agree with, and it might gain you an entire world of knowledge that you wouldn't have otherwise had. And that includes older farmers. It includes people of different political spectrums. It includes people that even if they might be kind of abhorrent to you on a personal level, it does not mean that their knowledge and experience is worthless and valueless. So I would remind everyone that we are all connected and it's up to each one of us to bring the most out of those connections. And sometimes that means being willing to go outside of your comfort zone and talk to people who who you don't know what their knowledge is until you speak to them. And then if they're still a jerk and their knowledge level <laughs> sucks and they don't give you any good information, you can just, you know, you you did it. You were a good person for a minute. You can walk away and still be satisfied. Yes.
2: Yes. All all <laughs> truths there. I think about Another person that I've talked with on this podcast is Wendy Oski from uh, Wyoming, and we were talking about where she learns things, and and she says, you know, I go to YouTube a lot, and I said, well, how do you tell that, you know, the trash from the treasure? How do you tell whether something's good? And and she said something along the lines of, um, I. I listen with my heart because my head sometimes says, oh, I I don't like that person or I don't like this the way this is being said. But she said, somehow my heart says, no, you need to listen. Just hear this out and then see what you think. And I've reflected on that thinking, yeah, you know, as as I get, you know, I'm just always way so busy and, and rush, rushing around and I have my ways that I learn and people that I trust. And, and I've not been open enough to what, what you're talking about, Mickey, of learning from people that, you know, it. I just, it's hard for me to, to listen to them. And so, when when i hear wise women like you and wendy saying these things it brings it deeper into my understanding about how important it is for me to seek out diverse opinions and it you know it might be from someone who's not even talking about sheep they might be talking about human nutrition they might be talking about elephants in africa But there are things that I might be able to hear and then dive into a little deeper, either in conversation with. My community or mentors, um, based on what I'm hearing from from you, Mickey. There's there's so much wisdom here, and and I hope you don't get to where you hang up every time I call you because here's Linda again saying, "What do you think about this?" <laughs> you know, and I do have one of those questions right now. So one of the controversies that I've heard going around in the sheep world is: Can sheep? Do they have nutritional wisdom? Or do we need to be the ones who balance their diet and control them? And this turns out to be really important for people who are doing, who are doing ultra high stock densities and, and managed grazing, where the sheep are in small, small units of land and they're moved by the shepherd from one place to another without them being able to to walk through different environments, like it sounds like yours do and mine do. You know, it might be that I'm going to settle them on one particular type of something, but along the way, they have a choice of where they take a bite as they walk. So, you know, and the other piece of this is the minerals that we provide. Can we just set up one mineral package or do we spend the money and do these mineral buffets where there's six or eight or 20 different single types of things that the animals can choose from. So long way to say, what do you think about sheep and nutritional wisdom within them and how that affects our management?
0: Okay, so I'm going to be unpolitic with my response to this and say, why are we considering sheep as any different than humans? And can you show me An average human who has the time and the knowledge to be completely nutritionally balanced. Because when I look around me at my peers, I see a lot of nutritional imbalance. And if I were managing humans, I would definitely be making some different choices for how they're moved and what they're eating and what their forage is. And they would be much healthier for it, but they would probably not be much happier for it. Okay. Okay. (laughs) With that said, You know, I wanted to kind of touch back on something else that was earlier said in this, and that's that we need to do more than just learn from other humans. We also need to be willing to learn from the land and the animals themselves. And if you cut loose sheep on the same terrain day after day to do their own designs, they will turn it into a desert or they will turn it into a paradise for non palatable species of plants and not by itself. It is like, let's just sit on that thought for a moment because it's not just the sheep's nutritional needs, right? It's also the needs of your land. It's also the needs of your future. Because you could just turn them out and let them do their own thing and they would be fine for maybe a year, maybe two years, but maybe in three years, you're going to notice that they're looking thinner and they're getting more parasites. And maybe in four years, you're going to notice that your lamb sizes are suffering and your lambs aren't gaining as quickly. And maybe in five years, you're going to notice that most of your lambs don't survive at all. And that's based on things that I have witnessed with small farms in my community and that is exactly the trajectory in a environment with plenty of moisture and not great soils but not terrible soils and even terrible soils are enriched by the presence of sheep so I think that it's kind of shallow to just look at the nutritional needs of the sheep as somehow being separate from the needs of the environment around them. And I I say that respectfully, not, I don't think you were asking the shallow question. If you just let them manage themselves, just like us, they're only going to go for the things that taste good. And they're going to freaking eat those until they are not around and it's going to be like if you're locked in your apartment for a week and you can't go to get groceries because it's the end of the month and your paycheck is like freaking long gone and all the chips are gone and all that you've got left is like that two-year-old peanut butter at the back of the cabinet that the oil has separated from the butter part and it's just this like thing that you have to stab with the knife 8 million times to actually make it food again. Then there that's, that's going to be the sheep. If you don't give them good grazing guides and good choices. Yeah. Mm. As far as minerals go, I really think that more, I think we need to normalize talking about minerals more often and we need to normalize talking to your extension service and doing soil testing so that you know what the nutritional content of plants grown in your area is going to be weak or strong on, particularly with sheep and goats, because they need so much selenium. And there are so many parts in the you know, world where selenium is either super dense or super non-existent. And I personally, we have changed our use of minerals. We no longer do regular mass-produced store minerals. We now, after consulting with a vet and getting soil testing and getting forage testing done, we make a custom mix of minerals and salt and i mix it up with a a grout blender on a corded drill and we provide that to our sheep to supplement their mineral use and i know that if i get lazy and let those minerals go without replacing them and replenishing them when the sheep need them it shows it shows in the wool quality it shows in their susceptibility to parasites It shows in the brightness of their eyes and the cant of their ears. Mm -hmm. And so I really Mm -hmm. believe that uh, by site-specific tailoring of mineral use, that you can maximize your animal's gains at a minimal amount of cost and without uh, over-supplementing them on something that might already be environmentally rich. Because you can have too much of a good thing.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you you've landed in the same place that I have in the in the big fun debate about what do you do about minerals. Um, you know, I have I have my hay tested, I have my forage tested. I send the information to a uh, to a professional nutritionist who makes a basic blend for me, and uh, you know, and that changes. I I add in my lime and my salt and and you know calcium it's all balanced for the for the gestational and developmental stage of the sheep and it saved me so much money and and the reason I didn't do it when I started is I thought man this is so expensive every one of those hay tests is 25 bucks and and the nutritionist is saying, hey, I need to I need to know what your pastures are at different times of the year. And I just looked at that and thought, oh, so much money I don't have. But this is one of those things where the return on investment has been huge for me. Um, it's a, it's avoided so many problems. Yeah. So. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: It's yeah. just Prevention—it's just like going to your doctor and and getting a blood panel done and finding out, you know, oh my folate's too high, maybe I should quit taking those folic acid tablets in the morning, or oh my vitamin D is super low, maybe I should get outside in the sun and wander around some, or maybe I'm in an area where my skin melanin is so rich that I'm not getting the proper amount of vitamin D from my environment. And I need to actually take some vitamin D and supplement that. And, oh, wow, my depression has lifted. It's the same thing because we're all we're all based on the same biology as mammals. Like humans and sheep are not actually all that far from each other, even though we're looking at ruminants and primates. We still come from the same sea of of origin. And that might be distressing for some people. And some people might have an ideological difference and they don't believe that. But what can be believed is that we all share the same environment. So it's easy to infer that that means that certain principles can be brought forward through all creatures. Just like plants need to have the right fertilizer your sheep need to have the right minerals.
2: Yeah. Mickey, this has been such an incredibly rich conversation. I've learned a lot. I'm going to have to listen to this recording several times myself to harvest all the information. I will um, email you afterwards and, and get the links to these books that you've mentioned. We'll we'll try to have that come forward. I think the main thing that I got out of this conversation you said very early on in it, and that's that we are all together in this. You know, it's not like humans are apart from nature and and all this. We we are a part of it, and and I've heard so much from you about the the role of us as shepherds. You know, as, as stewards, not just not just taking care of our sheep, but taking care of our land, our water you know, and that's how we take care of the community today and the future in front of us. And I just want to say thank you so much for your generous, generous sharing of information with us. And I wish you all the best. And I hope to be learning from you for years moving forward. So thank you,
0: Mickey, for your time. Oh, thank you. And, you know, for for any folks who are listening to this, if you want to contact me, uh, Instagram is the one and only way where I will actually respond. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I'm terrible with email and phone calls and all like that. But if you contact me on Instagram, it's at dot ranch and that's D O T R A N C H. And I will always talk to people about sheep. However, I'm like a jukebox You put a couple quarters in you better let the song play out. So, just a caution.
2: (laughs) Well, what what I can say is it's worth listening to the entire song when you're the one who's singing it, Mickey. So, thanks again. Thank you.
1: That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Additional information about this episode and related resources can be found at atra.incat.org. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to Voices from the Field wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Rich Myers. ATRA, Voices from the Field, is produced by the National Center for Appropriate Technology, headquartered in Butte, Montana. It's supported by the USDA Rural Business Cooperative Service as part of NCAT's ATRA Sustainable Agriculture Program. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this recording are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the USDA or NCAT. We'll catch you again next week, and until then, keep on farming.